turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. I love uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and his preaching. I love the Puritans and the sermons of the Puritans. And both Lloyd-Jones and the Puritans taught that good preaching takes one truth from a text and then spends the sermon explaining that truth, opening up that truth, applying that truth. That The goal of a good sermon is to take one truth from a text and to help God's people see it and understand it and feel its weight and believe it and obey it. And I love that kind of preaching. This morning, we are not doing that. And that's because we are working our way through this list of names here in Romans 16. And these are people to whom Paul is sending greetings at the end of this great letter. And so what we are going to do is to work our way through this list of names, stopping at certain names to draw out a truth for us to believe and obey. Each place that we're going to stop in this text could be its own sermon. But I don't want us to get bogged down. I certainly don't want to exasperate you as a congregation And I do have an aim for us to finish this book of Romans in just a matter of a few weeks. And so instead of one sermon about one truth, uh, what you really have this morning is going to be several sermonettes, okay? Uh, But I hope that each one of these places where we stop in the text and we draw out a truth, I hope it will encourage us. And edify us and renew our passion to love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a little different this morning. But let's look at the text. We begin by reading in verse 1. Romans 16 verse 1. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, servant of the church at Centri, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, 
Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who were with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss, and all the churches of Christ greet you. For those of you who from time to time come up here and, and lead us in the public reading of Scripture, and sometimes you don't like that I give you a text with hard names, you can see that this is my time in having to deal with those hard names as well. And I practiced hard on trying to say Epinetus. Ep- There's one, I still can't get that one right, though I've practiced it, so I, I feel your pain. We've already seen that Paul loves these people. We've already seen from this passage that his central love is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why the Lord is all over these greetings. The Lord is mentioned over and over again. We've also noticed the diversity in this passage. Uh, At least one third of these names are Jewish. The other two thirds are Gentile. We've seen there's a significant number of women mentioned here. At least 10 of these names are certainly women. Last time we looked at Phoebe. We saw that Phoebe is a fine example for us of a woman who served the Lord by serving her local church and by being generous to the cause of missions. And Phoebe is the one bringing this letter from Paul to the church in Rome. So now we pick up with the list of people that Paul greets. And first is Prisca and Aquila. Uh, Prisca is a shortened form of Priscilla. It may have been something of a nickname. Uh, The way we might refer to a woman named Elizabeth is simply Liz or Beth. Uh, The fact that Paul calls Priscilla Prisca may reflect his friendship with this couple. And the fact is, we could definitely preach a whole sermon on Priscilla and Aquila. In fact, we've done so in the past. Uh, Back when we did our series called The Second Fiddlers, uh, we looked at Priscilla and Aquila and talked about their missional marriage and the way this couple served the Lord Jesus. So I'm not going to spend as much time on Priscilla and Aquila this morning, but here's just a little of what we know about them. We know that they were a married couple living in Italy, probably living in Rome, several years before this letter was written. We know that Aquila was a Jew from Pontus on the southern border of the Black Sea, in what's today Turkey, Uh, that he was likely one of the dispersed Jews who had left Israel during a time of war or during a time of famine. We do not know where Priscilla came from. Uh, We think she was a Jew, but we don't know that. But somehow God brought this man and he brought this woman together and they married. And it was probably while they were living in Rome, the capital city of the empire, that this couple first heard the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether they heard it in Rome or whether they were part of the group that was in Jerusalem for this Pentecost, we do not know. We do not know the story of their conversion, but we do know that Priscilla and Aquila became believers And we think they were probably some of the first members of this church in Rome. But in 52 AD, the emperor Claudius expelled 
all the Jews from Rome. And that meant that Priscilla and Aquila had to leave. And so they packed up their bags and they moved to the city of Corinth. And we know from Acts 18 verse 3 that Priscilla and Aquila worked together as tent makers. Uh, Tent making was an important trade, especially in a day when not only desert people, but particularly military legions needed tents. So here they are in Corinth. It's a very pagan city. They are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're working in this, this tent making business. And behold, here comes another Christian into town. And he's also a tent maker. And his name is the Apostle Paul. And so Paul begins preaching the gospel in Corinth. Very quickly, Paul connects with this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. And rather than seeing Paul as competition for their business, he actually begins working with them. And he begins to stay with them. So for 18 months, Paul lived with Priscilla and Aquila. They provided hospitality to him as he preached in the city of Corinth, as he helped the church in Corinth get established. And note, by the way, that in giving hospitality to Paul, they were likely putting themselves in greater danger. There was already some danger just in being a follower of Jesus Christ in Corinth. But in being hosts to the apostle, they were putting a target on themselves. And Paul says in verse 4 here that Priscilla and Aquila risked their necks for his sake. They were radical in their hospitality. They were willing to offer their home even when it meant increased danger to themselves. For this, Paul says, not only does he thank them, but all the churches of the Gentiles. Their willingness to host him, their radical hospitality, proved beneficial to many besides the Apostle Paul. Their partnership with him meant that they were helping support the great mission of getting the gospel to all the Gentiles, to to all the nations. And so eventually, the church in Corinth gets well established and it's time for Paul to leave. But this couple... Priscilla and Aquila had become such ministry partners with Paul that when he leaves, they leave too. The three leave Corinth together and they come to Ephesus. And after some time there, Paul leaves Ephesus to continue on in his missionary work. But Priscilla and Aquila are left behind in Ephesus. They are left by Paul to help with the work that is happening in that city. They're not pastors, they're not church leaders. They're simply a married couple who builds tents, but they want to live and work in a place where they can be of most help to the work that God is doing. And they knew that being in Ephesus for that time, they could be a real help to that young church as it was getting started. It's in Ephesus that we find Priscilla and Aquila taking the young Apollos aside, this preacher, and and they spend time with him and they help him know the truth of God more accurately, accurately. And then, eventually, Emperor Claudius dies, and Nero comes to power, and the Jews are allowed to return to Rome. And by the time that Paul writes this letter, we find Priscilla and Aquila back in Rome, and they're now hosting a church in their house. So... What can we learn from this couple? There's a lesson here about marriage and the joy that a husband and wife can find in serving Jesus together. 
There's a lesson here about how the wife in a marriage can sometimes be more knowledgeable of the two and how there are ways that ladies in a church can have a real impact on future leaders. The way we think Priscilla was able to speak into the life of young Apollos in a way that truly helped him in his ministry. There are lessons here about hospitality and the influence of good Christian fellowship and conversations. In fact, hospitality looms large when talking about Priscilla and Aquila because they opened up their home to Paul for a year and a half. They hosted a church in their home in Rome, and they seemed to have been willing to move and make their home wherever they thought they could be of most use to Christ. And there is a lesson here about orienting our lives. To the mission of Christ. So let's examine ourselves. And let's ask. Have we surrendered ourselves in this way? To Christ's service. Are we letting the the mission of Christ shape our lives. The way this couple let the mission of Christ shape their lives. Put it bluntly. Are you willing to go where you can be of maximum impact for Jesus? If you knew that by moving and living somewhere else, you could have a greater impact for the kingdom of Jesus, would you do it? And as you look around your life here and you see opportunities here, are you willing to make the changes necessary for you to have the most impact for the kingdom? Are you walking with Christ and growing in such a way That you have something valuable to pour into the hearts and lives of others. And you're looking for the opportunity to do so. We could say much more about Priscilla and Aquila, but we'll move on. So next, that was sermonette number one. Okay, Uh, Next, we're going to move to this name that I struggle with, Epinetus. Epinetus. He's found in verse 5. And Paul greets him as... Beloved, He's one of several greeted in that way in this list. Uh, literally, Paul was saying, he is loved by me. Okay, So what do we know about this man? Well, we only know what we find here. Paul tells us that he was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Uh, Paul literally calls him the first fruits. This man was the very beginning of the harvest to come in Asia. Maybe you know the stories of missionaries serving in hard places and how missionaries can labor for a long time without seeing a single convert. And then when then there's that, that first person that comes to Christ, it's such a joyful thing. Suddenly every cost, every struggle that has been endured by that missionary, it becomes small in comparison because here is that first convert, a soul that will live forever in heaven instead of in hell. Epinetus was the first convert in Asia. How many millions since him have believed on Christ in Asia? He was the first fruits. Paul mentions Mary. In verse 6, Mary was a common name then, just as Mary is a common name now. So we are quite certain this is not Mary, the mother of Christ. This is not one of the other Marys from the Gospels. This is a different Mary. She was a woman who had worked hard for the church in Rome. This is a woman who had served much. 
Paul doesn't mention her having any official title or any office, but Paul literally calls her Mary who has toiled much. Mount Hermon, real service to Christ shows itself in toil. Real service to Christ shows itself in work. Real energy and emotion and time and effort and sacrifice. When was the last time you wore yourself out in service to Jesus? When was the last time you were weary because you were serving Jesus? Are we hard workers for Christ the way this lady Mary was a hard worker for Christ? And is there any other king or any other cause more worthy of our sweat? And our hard work. And so whatever it is in your various callings and opportunities that God brings your way, let us be hard workers for Jesus. Verse 7, we have Andronicus and Junia, probably a married couple. Everything we know about them comes from this one verse. Paul gives us four facts about this Andronicus and Junia. First, he says they are his kinsmen. That means that they are Jews, like Paul was a Jew. It could mean that there's a closer relation, that they are somehow closer relatives than that, but we don't know, so it at least means that they are Jews. Second, Paul says they're fellow prisoners. Now this could mean, and something it does mean, that this couple was once in prison with Paul. Uh, Paul may have been in prison as many as seven different times. And it is not at all impossible that this couple was in prison with him for their faith in Jesus. But it may just mean that they, like Paul, had gone to prison for their faith. They had shared this common experience with Paul. Not that they had been with Paul at the same time in a prison, but that they too, like Paul, knew what it was to be in prison for their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Third, Paul says that they are well known to the apostles. And I do think that's the correct translation. There's some debate over that. I think Paul's point is that this particular couple is well known, not only to him, but this couple is known by Peter and James and John and Matthew and Thomas and, and the other apostles. And why is this particular couple known well by the apostles? Well, number four, Paul says they were in Christ before him. This couple appears to have been uh, among those early converts to Christ. When you're reading in the beginning of Acts, and you see these Jews from all over who've come to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and then Peter preaches, and these people are saved, it's possible that Andronicus and Junia were part of that early group of believers. They may have been converted on the day of Pentecost, or they may have been among those, remember we're told that the Lord was adding daily those who were being saved. So maybe in the days immediately following Pentecost, this couple was among those in Jerusalem that were saved. This is why they were well known to the apostles. They were there at the beginning. When the, when the Christian church was meeting together every day, when people were being discipled and home to home, when they were breaking bread together and they were praying together and they were learning the scriptures together. And now they've returned to Rome and they are in the church of Rome. Uh, one lesson we can draw from this couple, uh, I would point to their imprisonment. Sometimes service to Jesus looks like being arrested and put in jail. 
Uh, The Voice of the Martyrs magazine, like we have out there, often shares the stories of brothers and sisters in Christ who are imprisoned for their faith. And I think it's just a moment for us to ask ourselves, should the day come? Should the day come where we are put in such a situation where we must either renounce Christ and his principles or be put in jail, what would we do? Would we willingly endure imprisonment for Christ's sake rather than renounce him or rather than renounce his principles or his truths? And I used to think that day was far, far ahead in the future. I'm not so sure that day isn't a bit closer than we might think. Continuing on in our profiles of service here, uh, the truth is we know very little about the names in verses 8 or 9. We do certainly see Paul's love for these people. He recognizes Urbanus as a fellow worker. But we can say a little more about verse 10. Verse 10. We have this man, Apelles. We're told he is approved in Christ. Most agree that Paul is using this language, approved in Christ, because this man has endured some great trial or some great test of his faith. Uh, He may have been one who had already suffered greatly for Jesus. This language of approval is often used of those who persevere in faith, who persevere in obedience to Jesus, not giving in, not proving faults when placed under the fire. And certainly we know that even some in this church right now are walking through a trial where their faith is being tested. And the question is, will they come out being approved for the, for the gold Be the real thing. Mount Hermon, in the midst of our own trials, in the midst of our own tests of faith, are we being proved? Are we approved in Christ? Is our allegiance to Jesus holding when it's hardest? Now, our next three names are very interesting. Paul does not greet Aristobulus. He greets the people connected to him. And if you look at verse 11, it's the same with Narcissus. He's greeting the people connected to Narcissus. Now, in the ESV, our version, they're using the word family. The family of Aristobulus. The family of Narcissus. If you use some other translations, uh, they'll often use the word household, which is a, a little bit of a looser group. The household of Aristobulus. The household of Narcissus. What you need to know is that in the original, all Paul says is, greet those of Aristobulus. Greet those of Narcissus. And your translation, trying to make sense of that, adds in the word family or household. Now, we know there was a man named Aristobulus in Rome because he was the grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great was the man appointed king of Judea by the Roman Senate. He was the man ruling over Israel when Jesus was born. Herod the Great is the man who ordered the killing of all the baby boys in Bethlehem. And Aristobulus is his grandson, a man of wealth, A man who was close to Emperor Claudius. And he was also a man with a household of servants and slaves. 
And what we're told is that once he died, his slaves would have become slaves now belonging to the emperor. This was common practice in ancient Rome during the time of emperors. When a wealthy man died, often as a show of allegiance to the administration, to the emperor in power, they would have it so that when they died, all of their slaves and servants suddenly went into the custody of the emperor. But those slaves would have continued to be known as those of Aristobulus. We think something similar is true for Narcissus. Uh, We know who this Narcissus was, we think. There was a prominent man named Narcissus who lived in the last days of Claudius, in the early days of Nero. In fact, he was an ungodly man, um, a very wealthy and powerful man. Nero actually has him put to death. He had a household with many slaves, and upon his death, they would have belonged to the emperor. But they also would have kept the name Narcissus. These slaves would have been known as those of Narcissus. We actually have an ancient inscription that refers to someone who was of Narcissus, a slave of Narcissus. And so it seems likely that these folks that Paul is greeting here are actually slaves of some of the royalty in Rome. Actually, that they are groups of servants or slaves who ultimately belong to Emperor Nero himself. Of course, the emperor would have owned many slaves in Rome. So you have these these slaves who are part of the church in Rome, but then right in the middle of them, you have this man, Herodian. Herodian, probably connected to Aristobulus' household, but probably not as a slave. I don't think Aristobulus would have named one of his slaves after his grandfather, Herod the Great. So Herodian may well have been a a true member of Aristobulus' family, a relative of Herod the Great, someone of nobility. In other words, what we're seeing here is that the church of Rome had people of great power and wealth and had people who were slaves to those who had great power and wealth. And as we've seen, when they came together, they were not to come together in terms of their class distinctions. They were to come together as brothers and sisters in Jesus. They were to put one another's needs first. They were to serve one another. They were to love one another. A slave might be more knowledgeable and more qualified to teach than those in that house church who were uh, of more nobility or more wealth. The slave should teach. And the others should listen and learn for their benefit. The class distinctions were to fall away when it came to the life of the church and the way that they cared for one another. And so it should be for us. Let's look at these final names in verses 12 through 15. In verse 12, we have two sisters, Tryphena and Tryphosa. In fact, based on those names, many think they were twins, twin sisters. Uh, We don't know that. just possible. But Paul speaks about their work for the Lord. Uh, When I think of them, I think about these two ladies. Um, The summer that Crystal and I got married, I was serving as a youth intern at my dad's church where he was pastoring then, First Baptist Foley, Alabama. And there were two older ladies, both from England, both in their 80s, both widows, uh, Eve and Vera. Um, Mrs. Eve lived to the ripe old age of 100, and she's no longer with us. Vera is still alive. But those two sisters loved the Lord Jesus, loved each other, and loved the church. 
And they were always there, and they, and they served the church. In fact, the, the church had in many ways become the center of their retired lives, right? And so they were finding their, their well-being and their, their mission in life in those last years and serving the people of that church. They were a blast to be around, right? Partly because of their wonderful British accents, right? But they, they were just a joy to be around as they served the Lord. And it is a special thing. When you can serve the Lord Jesus alongside your relatives, right? We know that our brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ is even stronger than our blood relatives, okay? But it is wonderful when those things come together, isn't it? And that you can serve alongside your physical family members, the Lord Jesus Christ. Something similar was probably going on here with Tryphena and Tryphosa, who Paul says had worked hard for the Lord. Paul speaks of Persis. That's also a lady's name. Uh, it's just a reminder of how um, vital, hardworking women are to the life of a church and the life of a healthy church. Uh, in this case, though, Paul speaks of her hard work as something in the past. Uh, whether it was through old age or whether some kind of intense sickness had come into the life of Persis, it appears that Persis was no longer able to work hard in the same way that she once used to. But Paul was thankful for her, and he loves her, and he greets her. And so I think from Persis we get this lesson. Mount Hermon, let us understand that we're not guaranteed that we're going to have the same health to serve Jesus tomorrow that we have today. And so we ought to serve him now with all our might while we can. And then we have Rufus and his mother. And the evidence suggests that this Rufus is the son of Simon of Cyrene, the very man who was forced to carry the cross of Christ to Golgotha. Uh, it is Mark's gospel that takes a moment, and as he, Mark is telling us the story of Jesus and the crucifixion, it's Mark's gospel that stops and mentions Simon of Cyrene and says he is the father of the two sons, Alexander and Rufus. Mark understood that the early church knew who these sons were. And most agree that Mark wrote his gospel particularly for the church in Rome. And so we think that Rufus was probably part of the church in Rome, and therefore it would make sense here that this Rufus would be the Rufus, that is, the son of Simon of Cyrene, the man who carried the cross for Christ. And it appears here that Rufus, too, had been carrying a cross for Christ. Uh, Paul calls him chosen in the Lord. And of course, all Christians are chosen in the Lord in the sense of divine election. But here, we think the word has the idea of being a choice servant. Sometimes we'll speak of someone that way who God has used mightily for his purposes. And we'll say, oh, he's a choice servant of the Lord. She's a choice servant of the Lord. Rufus was a choice servant of the Lord. He had truly worked hard for Christ. But then... Paul mentions Rufus's, Rufus' mother. Um, she would have been the wife of Simon. And clearly, she had extended love and hospitality and warmth towards the Apostle Paul in the past. Because Paul says that she has been a mother to him as well. Um, it's interesting. We know nothing about Paul's parents. 
about Paul's own mother and father. But here we find that Rufus's mother had in some ways been something of a mother to Paul. Now, Herman, we live in a day when people come from broken homes, when many people come from family circumstances where they lack a godly father or mother. Many of us know what it is to lose a father or a mother or both in death. You and I have opportunities to be a father or mother to people who are younger than us, who are around us. We have opportunities to put our arms around people to care for their needs, to express a real interest in their lives the way a good dad or a good mom would. And so I think we should follow the example of Rufus's mother. Let's, let's look for opportunities to love the way she loved. In verses 14 and 15, we have two last groups of people. And I am not going to even try and say their names again. Uh, In verse 14, we have a list of five names. And then Paul adds the brothers that are with them. So we have these, these five names and the brothers that are with them. And Paul sees them as being one group of people. Then in verse 15, he mentions four more names. And he adds, and all the saints who are with them. So we seem to have two uh, fairly large groups of people that Paul has in mind. Now, we don't know who they are. It may be that these are two groups of people belonging as maybe servants in different people's households. But there's no household name given here. We're not told those who belong to the household of Aristobulus and Narcissus. There's, There's no household name here. And so most think these groups are actually probably two different house churches. The church in Rome was one church But because of the dangers and the lack of a large space and the infeasibility of meeting together, the church in Rome met most Sundays in smaller house churches. And perhaps we have two different house churches represented here. Now, by the way, I don't think that was intended to be the ideal. We know from Acts that there were times, even in Jerusalem, when the apostles tried to gather all of the saints together in that city at one time. And very early in Christianity, as Christians are given increasing freedom, we find them obtaining property so that they can truly worship together in larger spaces. The reality is there are benefits to small group gatherings, and there are benefits to larger gatherings. And there are special problems that come with small gatherings. And there are special problems that come with larger gatherings. The Bible does not give us specific instructions on how large a regular Sunday gathering should be. There are some churches that grow really large and then they choose to split off. And become two or more smaller churches. They say, we've just gotten too big. It's hurting the life of our church. We're going to split and become two or three smaller churches. There are others, especially in more recent times, that are trying a satellite approach. Where they are are one church, multiple campuses. It's the way the Summit Church in Raleigh is, right? One big church, but multiple campuses. The Summit North, the Summit South, the Summit East. Other churches take the the route of just building bigger and bigger and bigger buildings 
so that they can accommodate thousands of believers all worshiping together in one service. Now, by the way, there are pros to that. I love the way you as a church sing on Sunday mornings, but can you imagine singing with thousands of people at one time? There's there's wonderful encouragement there. But there has been a reaction to that. You know, in these really large churches, sometimes a person can come in and go out and get lost in the crowd, and there's there's no interaction and fellowship. And so there's been a, a reaction, and that reaction has been the house church movement. And there is a house church movement that's growing in our country today that actually argues that churches ought to be small and that churches ought to meet in homes. And they point to passages like Romans 16 as their basis. Um, This is not something commanded in Scripture. We are not commanded to meet in homes. And I don't think the Christians in Rome were meeting in homes out of some sort of special conviction. I think they were meeting in homes because that's what worked out best for them in that time, in that situation. When they are a persecuted minority in a city full of Roman soldiers. I think that's why they were meeting in small groups in homes. And when they weren't meeting there, they were meeting, what, in underground caverns and crypts. I certainly don't think we would take that as an example for us. So how do we... Bring these sermonettes to a close. Well, he, what unites all of these people together? What unites them together is that they were all in Christ. Uh, we have people here from all over the place now worshiping in Rome. Rome was a melting pot. Okay? People came from all over, yet here they are in Rome. We have Jews in this passage. We have Gentiles in this passage. We have men in this passage, and we have women in this passage. We have nobility in this passage, and we have slaves in this passage. And what brought them all together was that every one of them had been saved by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before God on the last day, we will not be able to plead our gender or our ethnicity or our social class. None of that will win us any favor or any mercy with God. The law of God is the great leveler of all mankind. Whatever our station in life, we will find that we are all held to the same standard on the last day. But just as the law of God applies equally to all, so does the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to all who believe. From the highest noble to the lowest slave, Jesus saves. And so for us in this room this morning, whoever you are, whatever your your particular situation in life, Jesus saves. His life, death, and resurrection are enough for you. They are sufficient to make you right with God. They are the cure for your spiritual cancer. They are the answer to your controversy with God. Believe on Christ and all that he is and all that he has done and all that he has accomplished will be applied to you so that your sins will be forgiven. Through Jesus, you, no matter who you are, can go to heaven instead of hell. And then what this passage emphasizes is that through Jesus, you can be brought into a great family. Through Jesus, you can be brought into a family that stretches back through the pages of history. 
and into a family that, that, that is continuing to grow till the day that Jesus comes back. Through faith in Jesus, you're brought into a global family, a multi-ethnic family, a, a wondrous family. And as diverse as the people of God are, we are united as those indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, those united to Jesus by faith, those committed to serving Christ. We are lovers of Christ because He first loved us. We are the purchased of His blood. We are His bride. And so if you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to do so. Not only that you would have your sins forgiven and know what it is to go to heaven, but that you may be a part of the greatest family, the only eternal family that exists in this world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.